Chapter Nineteen, Part One of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Not even the proverbial stoicism of the red man was sufficient to conceal the chagrin and disappointment recognizable in every lineament of the countenances of both Satanta and Lone Wolf when they discovered that all their efforts at deception had not only failed but left them prisoners in our hands had we been in doubt as to whether their intention had really been to leave us in the lurch or not all doubt would have been dispelled by a slight circumstance which soon after transpired as i before stated we had almost reached fort cobb which was our destination for the time being the chiefs who had already made their escape now became anxious in regard to the non-arrival in their midst of satanta and lone wolf the delay of the last two could not be satisfactorily accounted for something must have gone amiss again was stratagem resorted to we were marching along without interruption or incident to disturb our progress such of us as were at the head of the column keeping watchful eyes upon our two swarthy prisoners who rode sullenly at our sides and whose past career justified us in attributing to them the nerve and daring necessary to induce an effort to secure their liberty should there be the slightest probability of success suddenly a mounted indian appeared far away to our right and approached us at a gallop until almost within rifle range when halting his well-trained pony upon a little hillcock which answered his purpose he gracefully detached the scarlet blanket he wore and began waving it in a peculiar but regular manner both chiefs looked anxiously in the direction of the warrior then merely glanced toward me as if to see if i had also observed this last arrival but too proud to speak or prefer requests they rode silently on apparently indifferent to what might follow turning to romeo who rode in the rear i directed him to inquire of the chiefs the meaning of the signals which the warrior was evidently endeavoring to convey to them satanta acted as spokesman and replied that the warrior in sight was his son and that the latter was signaling him that he had something important to communicate and desired satanta to ride out and join him to have seen the innocent and artless expression of the countenance with which satanta made this announcement one would not have imagined that the son had been sent as a decoy to cover the escape of the father and that the latter had been aware of this fact from the first however i pretended to humor satanta of course there was no objection to his galloping out to where his son awaited him because as he said the son was and for good reason perhaps unwilling to gallop in to where his father was but if satanta was so eager to see and communicate with his son there should be no objection to the presence of a small escort not that there existed doubts in my mind as to satanta's intention to return to us because no such doubt existed i was positively convinced that once safely beyond our reach the place at the head of the column which had known him for a few brief hours would know him no more forever 
I told Romeo to say to Satanta that he might ride across the plain to where his son was, and not only that, but several of us would do ourselves the honor to volunteer as his escort. The most careless observer would have detected the air of vexation with which Satanta turned his pony's head and, taking me at my word, started to meet his son. A brisk gallop soon brought us to the little hillcock upon which Satanta's son awaited us. He was there, a tall, trimly built warrior-type young fellow of perhaps twenty, and bore himself while in our presence as if he would have us to understand he was not only the son of a mighty chief, but some day would wear that title himself. What was intended to be gained by the interview did not become evident, as the presence of Romeo prevented any conversation between father and son looking to the formation of plans for escape. Questions were asked and answered as to where the village was and in regard to its future movements, but nothing satisfactory either to Satana or his captors was learned from the young warrior. Finally, I suggested to Satana that, as we only intended to proceed a few miles further, being then in the near vicinity of Fort Cobb, and would there encamp for an indefinite period, his son had better accompany us to camp, where Lone Wolf and Satana would be informed what was to be required of them and their people, and then, after conferring with each other, the two chiefs could send Satana's son to the village with any message which they might desire to transmit to their people. At the same time, I promised the young warrior good treatment, with permission to go and come as he choose, and in no manner to be regarded or treated as a prisoner. This proposition seemed to strike the Indians favorably, and, much to my surprise, knowing the natural suspicion of the Indian, the young warrior readily consented to the plan, and at once placed himself in our power. Turning our horses' heads, we soon resumed our places at the head of the column, the three Indians riding in silence, brooding no doubt over plans, looking to their freedom. By way of a slight digression from the main narrative, I will here remark that during the prolonged imprisonment of the two chiefs, Satana's son became a regular visitor to our camp, frequently becoming the bearer of important messages from the chiefs to their villages, and in time he and I apparently became firm friends. He was an excellent shot with a rifle. Satana said he was the best in the tribe, and frequently, when time hung heavily on my hands and I felt a desire for recreation, he and I took our rifles and, passing beyond the limits of the camp, engaged in a friendly match of target practice a much more agreeable mode of testing our skills as marksmen than by using each other as targets. Satana had exhibited no little gratification when I first engaged to shoot with his son, and as the lodge in which he was kept a closely guarded prisoner was on my route in returning from target practice to my tent, I usually stopped a few moments in his lodge to exchange passing remarks. He was evidently disappointed when he informed us as to the result of the first trial with our rifles that his son had come off only second best, and numerous were the explanations with which his fertile mind suggested as the causes leading to this result, 
a result in which the eyes of the Indian assumed far greater importance than would ordinarily be attached to it by white men. As we had agreed to have frequent contests of this kind, Satana assured me that his son would yet prove himself the better man. Each meeting, however, only resulted as the first, although by varying the distance every opportunity was given for a fair test. Finally, when all other explanations had failed, Satana thought he had discovered the real obstacle to the success of his son by ascribing superior qualities to my rifle as compared to the one used by him. Fairness on my part then required that I should offer the young warrior the use of my rifle and that I should use his in the next match, a proposition which was at once accepted and, as if to be better prepared to make an excellent score, my rifle was soon in his hands and undergoing the critical inspection and manipulation of trigger sights, etc., which always suggest themselves the moment an experienced marksman finds a new rifle in his hands. The following day we engaged as usual in rifle practice, he with my rifle, I with his. I frankly confess that having entered into the contest from the first with as much zest and rivalry as even my dusky competitor could lay claim to, and having come off victor in the preceding contests, I was not entirely free from anxiety, at least the change in rifles might also change the results and detract in the eyes of the Indians at least for my former successes. On this occasion, as all previous ones, we were alone, and consequently we were our own judges, umpire, and referee. Greatly to my satisfaction, my good fortune enabled me to make a better score than did my opponent, and this result seemed to settle this opinion finally as to our relative merits at marksman. I attached no little importance to these frequent and friendly meetings between Satana's son and myself, any superiority in the handling or use of weapons, in horseback experiences, or in any of the recognized manly sports, is a sure stepping stone in obtaining for the possessor the highest regard of the red man. Our arrival at Fort Cobb in the day of the seizure of the two chiefs, Lone Wolf and Satana, we selected a camp with a view of remaining at that point during the negotiations which were to be conducted with the various tribes who were still on the warpath. So far as some of the tribes were concerned, they were occupying the equivocal position which enabled them to class themselves as friendly and at the same time engage in hostilities. This may sound ambiguous, but it is easily explained. The chiefs and old men with the women and children of the tribe were permitted to assemble regularly at the agency near Fort Cobb, and as regularly were bountifully supplied with food and clothing sufficient for all their wants. At the same time, the young men, warriors, and war chiefs of the tribes were almost continually engaged in making war upon the frontier of northern Texas and southeastern Kansas. Indeed, we established the fact, while at or near Fort Cobb, that while my command was engaged in fighting the warriors and chiefs of certain tribes at the Battle of the Washita, the families of these same warriors and chiefs were 
being clothed and fed by the agent of the government then stationed at Fort Cobb. Surprisingly, as this may seem, it is not an unusual occurrence. The same system had prevailed during the past year. While my command was resisting the attacks of a large body of warriors on the Yellowstone River last summer, the families of many of these warriors, the latter representing seven tribes or bands, were subsisting upon provisions and clothed in garments issued to them at the regular Indian agencies by the government, but of these more anon. The three tribes which became at that time the special objects of our attention, and with whom we were particularly anxious to establish such relations as would prevent in the future a repetition of the murders and outrages of which they had so long been guilty, were the Kiowas, Cheyennes, and Arapahoes, the object being to complete our work by placing these three tribes upon reservations where they might be cared for, and at the same time be kept under proper surveillance. The Washita campaign had duly impressed them with the power and purpose of the government to inflict punishment upon all who chose to make war, and each tribe, dreading a repetition of the blow upon themselves, had removed their villages to remote points where they deemed themselves secure from further chastisement. Having Lone Wolf and Satana, the two leading chiefs of the Kiowas, in our hands, we thought that through them the Kiowas could be forced to a compliance with the just and reasonable demands of the government, and with the terms of their treaty providing for the reservation system. All demands upon the Kiowas were communicated to me by Lone Wolf and Satana, under the instructions of General Sheridan, who, although on the ground, declined to treat directly with the faithless chiefs. The Kiowas were informed that unless the entire tribe repaired to the vicinity of the agency, then located not far from Fort Cobb, the war which had been inaugurated with such vigor and effect at the Washita would be renewed and continued until the terms of their treaty had been complied with. This proposition was imparted to Lone Wolf and Satana, and by them transmitted to their tribe through the son of the latter, who acted as a sort of diplomatic courier between the Kiowa village and our camp. The Kiowas, while sending messages apparently in accord with the proposition, and seeming to manifest a willingness to come in and locate themselves upon their reservation, continued, and, after the manner of Indian diplomacy, to defer from time to time the promised movement. There was every reason to believe that finding the military disposed to temporarily suspend negative operations and resort to negotiation, the Kiowa had located their village within a short distance of our camp, as Satana's son, in going and coming with messages from one to the other, easily made the round journey in a single day. So that they had been so disposed, the Kiowas could have transferred their village to our immediate vicinity, as desired by military authorities in one day. The truth was, however, that while manifesting an apparent desire to conform to this requirement as a precedent to final peace, they had not intended at any time to keep faith with the government, but by a pretended acquiescence in the proposed arrangement, secure the release of the two-head chiefs, Lone Wolf and Satana, 
and then hastened with the entire village to join force with the other two tribes, Cheyenne and Arapahoes, who were then represented as being located somewhere near the source of the Red River, and on the border of the Lano Estacano, or Staked Plain, a region of country supposed to be impenetrable by civilized man. Every promise the Kiowas to come in was always made conditional upon the prior release of Lone Wolf and Satana. Their efforts to procrastinate or evade a fulfillment of their part on the agreement finally exhausted the forbearance which thus far had prompted none but the mildest measures on the part of the military authorities in the efforts of the latter to bring about a peaceful solution of existing difficulties. It had become evident that, instead of intending to establish relations of permanent peace and friendship with the whites, the majority of the tribes were only waiting the release of Lone Wolf and Satana to resume hostilities, or at least to more firmly ally themselves with the extremely hostile tribes then occupying the headwaters of the Red River. Spring was approaching, when the grass would enable the Indians to recuperate their ponies, which after the famished conditions to which winter usually reduced them, would soon be fleet and strong, ready to do duty on the warpath. It was, therefore, indispensable that there should be no further delay in the negotiations, which had been needlessly prolonged through several weeks. General Sheridan promptly decided upon the terms of his ultimatum, like most of the utterances of that officer, they were brief and to the point. I remember the day and the circumstances under which they were given. The general and myself were standing upon opposite sides of a rude enclosure which surrounded the space immediately about his tent, composed of a single line of rough poles erected by the unskilled labor of some of the soldiers. The day was one of those bright, warm sunshiny days so frequent in the indian territory even in winter i had left my tent which was about a few paces from that of general sheridan to step over and report as i did almost daily the latest message from the kiowas as to their intention to make peace on this occasion as on all former ones there was a a palpable purpose to postpone further action until Lone Wolf and Satana should be released by us. After hearing the oft-repeated excuses of the Kiowas, General Sheridan communicated his resolve to me in substance as follows. Well, Custer, these Kiowas are endeavoring to play us false. Their object is to occupy us with promises until the grass enables them to go where they please and make war if they choose. We have given them every opportunity to come in and enjoy the protection of the government if they so desired. They are among the worst we have to deal with and have been guilty of untold murders and outrages. At the same time, they were being fed and clothed by the government. These two chiefs, Lone Wolf and Satana, have forfeited their lives over and over again. They could now induce their people to come in and become friendly if they chose to exert their influence in that direction. This matter has gone on long enough and must be stopped as we have to look after the other tribes before spring overtakes us. 
You can inform Lone Wolf and Satanta that we shall wait until sundown tomorrow for their tribe to come in. If by that time the village is not here, Lone Wolf and Satanta will be hung and the troops sent in pursuit of the village. This might be regarded as bringing matters to a crisis. I proceeded directly to the lodge in which Lone Wolf and Satanta were prisoners, accompanied by Romeo as interpreter. I found the two chiefs reclining lazily on their comfortable, if not luxurious, couches of robes. Satanta's son was also present. After a few preliminary remarks, I introduced the subject which was the occasion of my visit, by informing the chiefs that I had just returned from General Sheridan's tent, where the question of the failure of the Kiowas to comply with their oft-repeated promises had been discussed, and that I had been directed to acquaint them with the determination which had been formed in regard to them and their people. At this announcement I could see that both chiefs became instantly and unmistakably interested in what was being said. I had so often heard of the proverbial stoicism of the Indian character that it occurred to me that this was a favorable moment for judging how far this trait affects their conduct for it will be readily acknowledged that the communication which I was about to make to them was one likely, at all events, to overturn any self-imposed stolidity which was not deeply ingrained in their nature. After going over the subject of the continued absence of the Kiowas from their reservation, the oft-made promises made only to be violated, I told them that they were regarded as they had the right to be as the two leading and most influential chiefs of the tribe, that although they were prisoners, yet so powerful were they among the people of their tribe that their influence, even while prisoners, was greater than that of all the other chiefs combined. Hence, all negotiations with the Kiowas had been conducted through them, and Although they had it in their power by a single command to cause a satisfactory settlement of existing difficulties to be made, yet so far they had failed utterly to exert the influence for peace between their people and the government. The announcement then to be made to them must be regarded as final, and it remained with them alone to decide by their action what the result should be. In as few words as possible, I then communicated to them the fate which undoubtedly awaited them in the event of the non-appearance of their tribe. Until sunset of the following day seemed a very brief period, yet I failed to detect the slightest change in the countenance of either when told that that would be the extent of their lives if the tribes failed to come in. Not a muscle of their warrior-like faces moved their eyes neither brightened nor quailed. Nothing in their actions or appearance gave token to anything unusual had been communicated to them. Satana's son alone of the three seemed to realize that matters were becoming serious, as could readily be told by watching his anxious glances, first at his father, then at Lone Wolf, but neither spoke. Realizing the importance of time, and anxious to bring about a peaceful as well as a satisfactory termination of our difficulties with the Kiowas, and at the same time to afford every facility to the two captive chiefs to save their oft-forfeited lives, for all familiar with their bloody and cruel career would grant that they merited death.' 
I urged upon them the necessity of prompt action in communicating with their tribe, and pointed to Satanta's son who could be employed for this purpose. Quickly springing to his feet and not waiting to hear the options of the two chiefs, the young warrior rushed from the lodge and was soon busily engaged in tightening the girths of his Indian saddle, preparatory to a rapid gallop on his fleet pony. In the meantime, Lone Wolf and Satanta began exchanging utterances at first slow and measured in tones scarcely audible. Gradually they seemed to realize how desperate was the situation they were in and how much depended upon themselves, then laying aside the formality which had up to that moment characterized their deportment. They no longer appeared as dignified, reserved, almost sullen chiefs, but acted and spoke as would be expected of men situated as they were. In less time than I have taken to describe the action, Satana's handsome son appeared at the entrance of the lodge, mounted and in readiness for his ride. Although he seemed by his manner to incline toward his father as the one who should give him his instructions, yet it was soon apparent that a more correct understanding existed between the two captives. Lone Wolf was the head chief of their tribe, Satana the second in rank. The occasion was too important to leave anything to chance. A message from Satana might receive prompt attention. A command from the head chief could not be disregarded. Hence it was that Satana stood aside and Lone Wolf stepped forward and addressed a few hasty but apparently emphatic sentences to the young courier, who was all eagerness to depart on his mission. As Lone Wolf concluded his instructions, and the young warrior was gathering up his reins and lariat, and turning his pony from the lodge in the direction of the village, Satana simply added in an energetic tone, Hurulti, hurulti, make haste, make haste, an injunction scarcely needed, as the young Indian and his pony were the next movement flying across the level plain. I then re-entered the lodge with Lone Wolf and Satana, accompanied by Romeo. Through the latter, Lone Wolf informed me that he had sent orders to the Kiowa village, which was not a day's travel from us, to pack up and come in as soon as a courier should reach them. At the same time, he informed them of what depended upon their coming. He had also sent for Black Eagle, the third chief in rank, to come in advance of the village, bringing with him a dozen or more of the prominent chiefs. I inquired if he felt confident that his people would arrive by the appointed time. He almost smiled at the question and assured me that an Indian would risk anything and everything to save a comrade, leaving me to infer that to save their two highest chiefs, nothing would be permitted to stand in the way. Seeing perhaps a look of doubt on my face, he pointed to that locality in the heavens which the sun would occupy at two o'clock and said, before that time, Black Eagle and the other chiefs accompanying him will be here, and by that time, indicated in a similar manner, sunset, the village will arrive. No general commanding an army who had transmitted his orders to his corps commanders directing a movement at daylight the following morning could have exhibited more confidence in the belief that his orders would be executed than did this captive chief in the belief that, Although a prisoner in the hands of his traditional enemies, his lodge, closely guarded on all sides by watchful sentinels, 
His commands to his people would meet with a prompt and willing compliance. After a little further conversation with the two chiefs, I was preparing to leave the lodge when Lone Wolf, true to the Indian custom under which an opportunity to beg for something to eat is never permitted to pass unimproved, called me back and said that the next day his principal chiefs would visit him, and although he was a prisoner, yet he would be glad to be able to entertain them in a manner befitting his rank and importance in the tribe, and therefore I was appealed to furnish the provisions necessary to provide a feast for a dozen or more hungry chiefs and their retainers, in reply to which the modest request I made the heart of Lone Wolf glad, and called forth in his most emphatic as well as delighted manner the universal word of approval, how, by informing him that the feast should certainly be prepared if he only would supply the guests. The next day was one of no little interest, and to none more than to the two chiefs who expected to see the first step taken by their people, which would terminate in their release from a captivity which had certainly become exceedingly irksome, not to mention the new danger which stared them in the face. Lone Wolf, however, maintained his confidence, and repeatedly assured me during the forenoon that Black Eagle and the other chiefs whom he had sent for by name would arrive no later than two o'clock that day. His confidence proved not to be misplaced. The sun had hardly marked the hour of one in the heavens when a small cavalcade was seen approaching in the distance from the direction of the Kiowa village. The quick eye of Satana was the first to discover it. A smile of hauntingly triumph lighted up in the countenance of Lone Wolf when his attention was called to the approaching party. His look indicated that he felt it could not be otherwise. Had he not ordered it? On they came, first about a dozen chiefs riding at a deliberate and dignified pace, they and their ponies richly comparisoned in the most fantastic manner. The chiefs wore blankets of bright colors, scarlet, predominating with here and there a bright green. Each face was painted in brilliant colors, yellow, blue, green, red, black, and combinations of all of them. No two faces were being ornamented alike, and each new face seemed more horrible than its predecessor. The ponies had not been neglected so far as their outward make-up was concerned, eagle feathers and pieces of gaudy cloth being interwoven in their manes and tails. End of chapter 19, part 1